So, um, this particular, uh, so the Moses of Midrash, God's partner or adversary, this emerged from my um, work on the golden calf story, which I hope is a story familiar to you all. And the dynamic between God and Moses in that story is one that really interests me. And because I talk a lot, I'm going to keep a clock here. What time do we, how long do we have? Just till about seven, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, seven oh five. Oh, wow! Wow! <laughs> right, slow down. Then. <laughs> okay. um, so the whole dynamic between God and Moses is what interests me here, and we're going to see how the rabbis produce it. And when I say how, I mean quite specifically, what is it they're doing when they're reading the biblical text, and um, how do they go about finding these incredible meanings that they find in the biblical text? So the first thing we need to do is be familiar with the, the biblical text and the story in particular. So uh, if you'll recall, at the point of Exodus 32, the Israelites have arrived at Sinai at this particular point, and um, they've agreed to accept the terms of the covenant, covenant even before hearing it. Moses has gone up to the top of Mount Sinai. He says, I will be gone for, some, for 40 days. And we're now at the end of Exodus 31. The 40 days have come to a conclusion, and God is handing over the tablets inscribed with the words of God um, to Moses, right? And then we have a cutaway. If this was a movie, you know, you would cut away now to the scene at the foot of the mountain, and the Israelites are demanding of Aaron that he make a for them, a golden calf, since they don't know what's happened to this guy. Moses, as they say, quite dismissively and disrespectfully. And the golden calf is made, and the people are all carousing. And then we flash back up to the top of the mountain. And God says, um, get down, because your people who you brought out of Egypt, Moses. <laughs> um, it's like, you know what your son did today, dear? So um, your people that you brought out of Moses have sinned. They've made a golden calf and worshipped him. They've strayed quickly from the path. And therefore, um, let me be, and my anger will blaze forth against them. So that's the scene that we're picking up now. God, God's two speeches to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, hurry down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted basely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined upon them. They have made themselves a molten calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it, saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord further said to Moses, I see that this is a stiff-necked people. Now let me be, and my anger will blaze forth against them, and I will destroy them and make of you a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God. Vayichal is the word there for implored. But Moses implored the Lord his God, saying, Let not your anger, O Lord, blaze forth against your people, whom you delivered from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he delivered them, only to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. Turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, how you swore to them by yourself and said to them, I will make you offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring this whole land of which I spoke to possess forever. And the Lord renounced the punishment, literally, and he repented, really, you know, repented the evil, the punishment, evil, that he had planned to bring upon his people. Now, there are some important gaps in this story. The Bible's really an interesting text because it can read very simply and smoothly, but if you just scratch the surface, you realize there are these gaps and problems, and it's really difficult to, 
to really picture exactly what's going on. And there are gaps here. Now, when I say gaps, I'm using gap in the way that scholars of literature use the word gap, which is not only an absence of information. We certainly have some places where there's some absence of information. I'll show you where's a big one in a minute. Um, but a gap is really anything in a text that is like a hiccup, anything that makes you pause for a minute, where you have to do some kind of work to make sense and to go on in reading the text. So there are very often many gaps in biblical texts, and the rabbis were terrific at responding to the gaps in rabbinic texts. This was sort of the grist for their um, interpretive mill, okay? So some of the gaps or problems in this text. The first one is a gap in the literal sense, a lack of information, and it appears between um, verse uh, 8 and 9 between God's first speech and God's second speech. So I've labeled them as God's first speech and second speech. We're not told how Moses reacts to God's first speech, uh, although it was probably something in that reaction that made God speak again. Now, why do I say that? Um, there's a little known kind of rule about biblical narrative dialogue. Um, and a couple of scholars have pointed this out. It's extremely rare in biblical dialogue to have one speaker speak twice in a row. Almost all biblical narrative dialogue, first of all, only involves two people. So even when there's three or four more characters in the picture, the dialogue is always between just two of them. You never have a three-way conversation in biblical narrative. That's why it could only be Eve and the snake, by the way, even though Adam was there. Anyhow. Um, <laughs> he was there. Because <laughs> um, it says she gave the apple to, to Adam with her. He was there with her. Um, so you will, and you will always have it between two people, and it will always go back and forth, A, B, A, B, A, B, except for, it's something like, I think a, it's a dozen times, maybe fewer than a dozen times. It's a very, very small number. One scholar's written an article about the few times that this happens, where it'll be A, B, A, B, B. Um, and someone speaks twice in a row. And it's usually uh, indicative that the, the, the pause between the two is a pregnant pause. And I'll give you a really great example from Saul and David. This is when Saul is looking for someone to take on the Philistine giant, Goliath, right? And he's asking for someone to come forward and do this. And David, who of course is the least of his brothers, he's this scrawny young kid, he comes up and Saul has his doubts, as you might imagine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he a man, from, a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, your servant kept his father's sheep, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and slew him. Your servant smote both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. What's the difference between David's first speech and his second speech? I mean, I was sort of doing it by my tone. The first yeah. speech is David. The second is the Lord. <laughs> That's one way to say it. The first speech is all David. <laughs> I think ego and braggadocio and swagger, right? And the second is the Lord in the sense that he's, you know, he realizes he got nowhere. So what do you imagine was Saul's reaction after the first speech? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who brought this kid in here? Right? He's 
Exactly. And David realizes he's not getting anywhere. So Saul is just completely unimpressed. And then he realizes, oh, I need to, I need to, I need a whole different approach here when I'm talking to the, you know, Saul. So, so that pregnant pause, right? When there's two speeches in a row, it means the other person has reacted in some way that's caused the person then to speak a second time. Okay, so here, in the silence between God's two speeches... Um, Dr. Hayes, why yeah. wouldn't he have said, wow, if he really cares that much, wow. And then he steps back and says, and God will deliver me. I don't know why, it just may be. So maybe there's more than one way to fill the pregnant pause. And that's what we're going to see in our story. Okay, okay. so you Sorry. just provided a second alter- uh, alternative interpretation. I went with the more cynical kind of, you know, but maybe you were just like... You're, maybe you're right. Maybe Saul's, you know, get, bring him the, bring his, bring him the slingshot and the stone. Let's go. Right? And then he said, "Yay!" And you know, yes, now God's going to help me just as He did with the lion. Sure, we can paint a whole picture that way. All right, but there's the room for interpretation, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. They're going to have two very different ways to fill in the space. Okay, so that was actually a lovely demonstration. <laughs> um, so we have to imagine Moses behaving in some way that prompts God to speak again. What did he do or what did he not do in that gap? And one way we can tell is sometimes by looking at the content of the second speech. So I look at the content of the second speech of David, for example, and to me it sounds so different, sort of like David and the Lord. You know, one where he's just bragging and it's all ego, and the second he's very humble and he attributes the victory to the Lord, and then that convinces Saul. And Saul wasn't convinced. So that's why I kind of lean in that direction. Um, so we can look at, this, at the language in the speech itself and maybe get some clue as to what Moses either did or didn't do that caused God to answer the way he did. And when we look at that, we'll see that it's fundamentally ambiguous, right? There are going to be two different ways that we can imagine Moses reacting to God's first speech, two different ways to understand even the tone in God's second speech, um, and then two different ways to understand Moses' long prayer in reaction to God's speech. So that's going to seem a little unclear now until we spell it out, but we'll get there. Um, so first, let's look at the language of God's second speech. He sort of immediately he just condemns the people. They're stiff-necked people. And then he says, now let me be, in verse 10. Um, so this implies, if you say to someone, you know, let me be, or leave me alone, or leave me be, That can imply a couple of things. It could imply that after his first speech, where he says, you know, get out of here, the people are, you know, the whole covenant's off, right? That's what the hurry down means. The covenant's off. Get out of here, the people are no good. They've already betrayed the covenant before. It's done. We're done. We're done. Um, So now why does he have to say, let me be? What does that imply Moses did after being dismissed? Well, it implies maybe he started to interfere and defend the people, right? Maybe he started to object or plead for mercy, and God has to be even stronger and more curt and say, stop it already. I've made up my mind. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start again with you, Moses. If that's true, if this is a command, then his task is really a formidable task, right? He um, made one attempt to intervene, and he's being silenced, so any subsequent entreaty is really going to have to be made in defiance of a direct order not to interfere. Um, would Moses be so disobedient? Okay, so I put that out there. That's one possibility. But there's another. What if, after the first speech, where God said, oh, get out of here, whole thing's off, we've been up here having a great time for the last 40 days, but guess what they've been doing? Mm-mm, done. And Moses' reaction might be, what? Might be, yeah. All right, total paralysis, like shock. Wait, huh? Okay. 
He might be completely paralyzed. You might be shocked. You might have, in fact, instead of doing something, you might have done absolutely nothing. He's too stunned. He's too overwhelmed by the news. And maybe his paralysis makes God really nervous. Maybe he's worried that Moses won't stand up and defend the people. And so if that's the case, maybe his second speech has a slightly different tone. Maybe his second speech sounds like this. Now let me be, and my anger will blaze forth, and I'll destroy them. Speak up. (laughs) Speak up, Moses. He's warning him that something terrible will happen if he doesn't play the role he's supposed to play. He's leaving the door open in a way for Moses' intercession, and he's signaling that he can be persuaded. Leave me be, and I will destroy them, and, you know, I'm going to start again with you. And and he might be, in fact, trying to rouse Moses out of his inaction and into action. And if so, then Moses' long prayer, instead of being an act of defiance or disobedience, is actually an act of obedience. He's taking God's hint, right? So those are two different possibilities right away. We have to think about what it means that God might do one or the other, etc. We'll come back to that. But I just want to point out a couple of other little uh, gaps, using that word gap to mean just hiccups, little weird things in the text that the rabbis are going to have some fun with. And the first is that the verb that's used to introduce Moses' speech, when it says in verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God, the Hebrew there is Vayichal, that's a very interesting, unusual Hebrew root. It has a bunch of different meanings, so we'll see at various times the rabbis are going to use different meanings, and we'll come back to that. I just want to warn you of it now. Second, the content of Moses' speech is pretty interesting. Because if you look at it, he first says, First of all, he hands the Israelites back to God, right? Remember, God said, your people that you uh, brought out of Egypt, he said, let not your anger, Lord, blaze forth against your people, whom you delivered from the land of Egypt. Well, that was me. <laughs> with a great hand, uh, with a great power and a mighty hand. Um, and then, let not the Egyptians say that, you know, it's an evil God, and remember your promise to the patriarchs. Very interesting speech, because he doesn't try to defend the people at all. Right? There's nothing in here that's defending the people. He's not even asking God to forgive. He's really at this point just saying, just hold off. Just don't do any, just don't go crazy and destroy them immediately. And he's appealing to God's sense of responsibility. They're your people. You brought them out of Egypt. He appeals, <coughs> he appeals to his vanity, <laughs> right? <laughs> he appeals to God's vanity. What will the neighbors think? Um, and then he also appeals to the, the promise, right? You did promise the patriarchs. How are you going to face them? Um, so those, are, those parts of his speech are going to be also important for the rabbis when they try to fill out who Moses is, what role he's playing here. So we'll keep that in mind. And thirdly, the third thing to be aware of is that he succeeds, right? That's not insignificant, what, you know, that can also reflect on how serious we think God is when God says, that's it, I'm, I want out of this and I'm going to destroy it. You know, it's important. It's a factor. So he does succeed. He changes God's mind. In fact, the language is very strong. God literally repents of the evil that he had said he would do to the people. Um, and, of course, some readers will find that theologically difficult to think of, of a God who changes his mind, but as we'll see this evening, it's not at all a problem for the rabbis. So... So just to kind of summarize before we look at the... I'm sorry. It's not the first time. God likes to be challenged. Didn't Abraham? Who was it with Lot? 
Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah was Abraham. Absolutely, yeah. God just definitely changes his mind. Um, so, uh, just to kind of be clear then, we can either read God's second speech as a real imperative, let me be, this is my plan, I'm going to destroy the people, and if it is an absolute imperative, telling Moses not to interfere, um, and giving God's express purpose to destroy the people, then Moses has a huge, formidable task. He has to turn back a seemingly inevitable tide of divine anger, and he has to do it in defiance of God's command not to interfere. And so his long entreaty is really an act of courage. Or we can read it not as an imperative, but as a conditional statement, kind of, if you let me be, then my anger will blaze forth. Um, and I'll destroy them. And if you read it that way, then God's speech isn't an order um, t for Moses to leave him alone, but um, he's informing Moses um, that he can act to prevent Israel's destruction by interceding. Um, and he has the power then to, to prevent God from destroying the Israelites. And then Moses' entreaty is an act of obedience. There are really two different models then for understanding Moses' activity, either as God's partner, this is why the title, or as God's adversary, right? Um, on the one hand, and, and I think this ties into two different perceptions of God, um, one in which God is more intimately and actively involved in the unfolding events of history, himself not quite knowing which way they're going to go, he, the one thing I always say to my students is the one great limitation on God's so-called omnipotence, um, his great power, is human free will. That's the one limitation on his power that he himself, you know, sort of has set up the possibility for by planting that garden, that tree in the Garden of Eden. Um, and that is a, a huge, a huge limitation on his, both his power and his knowledge. So if people tell you the God of the Hebrew Bible is omnipotent and omniscient, I say, no, thank goodness he's not, because uh, there is human free will. So, um, he, so we have a picture of God as, as sort of the Lord of creation and his, uh, the, the, on the one hand, as um, the Lord of creation and history who's unlimited by his creatures and whose word is sort of supreme law and to defy him means really doing battle with him and defeating him. And that is going to give us an image of Moses as, as God's adversary um, or as God who's more involved in the unfolding events of history, not sure which way they're going to go, having to watch for human action, responding to human action, humans then respond to him as more of a two-way street. And humans are therefore um, can be part to him, right, in, in his larger purposes. And here Moses would be viewed as a partner. He, God may state a plan of action, but you can reason with him or um, entreat him, um, and it might require tact and diplomacy and be a delicate task, but you can work with God to some other end, right? So we have these two different ideas of, of partner and um, adversary. As different as these readings might be, they do have an important element in common, and that is that God needs humans, whether he needs them to work with him or to defeat him on occasion. He needs humans. Um, they are essential to the unfolding of his purpose. So I wanted to take you through some texts now where we see how the rabbis really develop each of these two traditions. These two traditions really stand alongside one another and to see how far they are willing to go in one direction or the other. Um, to do that, we need to see what the rabbis' raw materials were. When they um, wanted to read the biblical text, they tended to do it by reading other biblical texts. Right? If I want to know what one verse means, I don't sort of go to 
philosophy and try to import a philosophical meaning, and I don't just reach around in my head, but I go and look at some other biblical verses and see what they might have to say. The Bible is a self-glossing book. It's a book in which, um, or it's a collection of books in which later materials will talk about and reflect on earlier materials, which is really fantastic. So you already see the process of interpretation beginning right within the Bible itself. So Deuteronomy 9 really contains one of our earliest readings of the Golden Calf story. Deuteronomy 9 is... Deuteronomy is the speech that Moses gives before he dies on the on the you know the east side of the Jordan River, um, and it's the speech that he gives to Israelites to the Israelites. And at the beginning, he kind of reviews their history together, kind of as a way of saying, "You've been really bad all along, and I have saved you every time. And if it weren't for me, none of you would be here. And I'm going to die now, and you're going over there alone. So don't mess up because you don't have me anymore. This is the message through the whole historical review he gives. And so he hits the highlights of the top moments of Israelites messing up badly and almost losing it were it not for him. So in the retelling of this story, however, um, a lot of, of the gaps of Exodus 32 get cleaned up along the way. So um, let's take a look at how some of that happens. He's recording to them what had happened when the, at Sinai, and he says, Then I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God by casting for yourselves an image of a calf. You had been quick to turn away from the Lord from turn from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and flung them from my two hands, smashing them before your eyes. Any of you familiar with Exodus 32 know that that's not quite what the text says there. Here he's trying to rub it in their noses. I was angry, and I said, there he kind of drops. I'm like, oh my goodness. But anyway, here he wants them to know that I was very angry with you. And then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin you had committed, provoking the Lord by doing what was evil in his sight. For I was afraid that the anger that the Lord bore against you was so fierce that he would destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. But I interceded also on behalf of Aaron at that same time, clearing up for us the fact that we don't understand why in Exodus 32 Aaron is punished. So Deuteronomy 9 tells us it's only because of Moses. He did what he had to do and he interceded. But what we have here is Moses, the intercessor par excellence. He's an intense suppliant. He intercedes on Israel's behalf. He pleads. He obtains God's mercy through intensive prayer and self-affliction. He plays this role, and he persuades the angry king. However, we get a different idea in another place in the Bible that refers to our story, and that's in Psalm 106. That's also a, a passage that retells the story of the golden calf. They made a calf at Horeb, that's another name for Sinai, and bowed down to a molten image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a bull that feeds on grass. They forgot God who saved them, who performed great deeds in Egypt, wondrous deeds in the land of Ham, awesome deeds at the Sea of Reeds. He would have destroyed them had not Moses, his chosen one, confronted him in the breach, stood literally in the breach to avert his destructive wrath. This is a really powerful metaphor because a breach, of course, is an opening in a wall or a line of defense through which an enemy enters to destroy you. So to portray Moses as standing in the breach casts God in the role of an enemy um, who's coming in to destroy, and he's, his access is just blocked by Moses, kind of physically, this physical image. I'm just not going to allow you to do this. You just won't pass through here. So um, this is he's a valiant defender of Israel, and he forcibly stays God's hand on this image to avert the calamity. So this is much more adversarial, much more battle-oriented. 
imagery, and that's going to be developed more fully and much more dramatically in the rabbinic interpretations, just as the um, suppliant and intercessor will be developed. So the rabbis, um, when they interpret the Bible, the body of literature is known as Midrash. Um, but as I said before, what I think is so fascinating about Midrash is the way that it finds meaning in biblical text by linking verses to other verses. And we'll see a couple of examples of that. They will, in fact, sometimes link it to some of the verses that we've just looked at, but also link it in other ways. Um, sure I know I have yeah, I do have this text. Good. Um, so the... The rabbis are picking up on the fact that the Bible itself already explicitly refers to and interprets earlier stories. We've seen Deuteronomy does that. We saw Psalm 106 does that for the golden calf story. So the Bible does this all over the place, and the rabbis know that. They understand the Bible to be a text that refers to itself and explains itself. But they're not satisfied with reading a story just in light of the verses that explicitly talk about it, like Psalm 106 or Deuteronomy 9. They have a larger conviction that all of the Bible is one sort of large field of meaning, and so they will summon a verse from some other part of the Bible and bring it into conversation with their story to see what happens when you just sort of smash these two verses up against one another. What, what new meanings are revealed? Um, so when they want to interpret a verse from Exodus, they will go and grab a verse from the Song of Songs in particular, or the Psalms of Proverbs. Those are favorite texts for, for doing this. And they'll read it alongside the verse in Exodus and say, this illuminates this. This is talking about this. And it will show some additional meaning in the, in the verse in Exodus. Um, so they're using these remote verses as keys to unlock or open the meaning of verses of the Torah books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, this method of reading is described in the first rabbinic text I bring on page two. And I just, I, like, I just love bringing this because it's just such a great expression of how the rabbis go about doing what they do. This, to me, is a description of the rabbinic workshop, okay? Benazai was sitting and interpreting, making midrash doish, and fire was all around him. They went and told Rabbi Akiva, what this amazing fire and light that's coming out from uh, Benazai. Rabbi Benazai is sitting and interpreting, and fire is burning all around him. And he went to him and said to him, I heard that you were interpreting, and the fire burning all around you. And he said, Indeed, I was sitting and stringing the words of Torah to each other, and the Torah to the prophets, and the prophets to the writings, and the words were as radiant as when they were given from Sinai, and they were as sweet as at their original giving. <coughs> so, um, this intertextual approach, that's what we call rabbinic midrash. It's a way of reading texts through other texts, or an intertextual approach. And we see it in many of their treatments of Exodus 32. So we'll start with one that reads our story in light of Proverbs 25. So I've given you the verse in Proverbs 25, 14 to 15. This is one which paints Moses as a real intercessor. Now the verse in Proverbs 25 isn't talking about Moses at all. Right? That's, that's the point. They give these verses that are just random standard verses. You know, Proverbs is exactly that, a book of just Proverbs. It doesn't talk about our biblical characters. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of a gift never given. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue can break bones. Now, the rabbis also want to figure out what the Proverbs um, text means, too. It's not a one-way street. These are going to be mutually illuminating. They wonder what that means. What has the first line got to do with the second? Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. 
you will appreciate this being Arizonans. Are you called Arizonans? Yes. Phoenicians. Phoenicians. Because in a desert environment, rain is a blessed thing, yes? yes so um, people who live in certain areas say, you know, they hate rain. They don't understand why a cloud with no rain is like a gift that's promised but not given. But if you live in a desert environment, um, as in the Middle East or here, then you know that when you see clouds and wind, you're hoping for rain. So clouds and wind without rain, that's like a person who promises a gift and then they don't give it, right? But what has that line got to do with the next? With patience, a ruler may be persuaded. The rabbis are going to make sense of the Proverbs verse, and at the same time, they're going to shed light on our story. The Lord spoke to Moses. Hurry down. This is your, your number two. The Lord spoke to Moses. Hurry down. Rabbi Tanchuma Bar Abba began, and he cites our verse. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of a gift never given. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue can break bones. And this is what they say about it. He who promises to give a present to his friend and does not do so is to be compared to clouds and wind and lightning, which come but bring no rain with them. This could be said of the generation that was in the wilderness at that time of the golden calf, that consisted of 600,000 old men and the same number of young men, of youths, and of women, when they came to Sinai and accepted the kingdom of the Holy One, blessed be he, and exclaimed as with one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and obey, right? Naseh Benishma, famous line. That, indeed, was a voice that could really be called a voice. But when they came to the wilderness, they transgressed everything and corrupted their deeds. So they were full of promise, right? But then they didn't follow up on it. When God saw this, he said to Moses, Hurry down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted basely. Shechit. Not only did they make an idol, but guess what else they did? They also committed immorality, and they shed blood. Because... In the story of the golden calf, it says that the people got up the tzachik to make merry. Well, the merrymaking, tzachok, referred to here, means idol worship, immorality, and the shedding of blood. The rabbis pile it on. These people were beyond hope. Whence do we know that tzachok means shedding of blood? Well, they're going to bring us a verse from 2 Samuel where, in fact, we have two soldiers who go out the tzachok and one of them kills the other, right? Whence do we know that it tzchok, also refers to immorality? Well, then they bring us a verse in Genesis 39, which talks about um, what Potiphar's wife, right? It says uh, the Hebrew servant who uh, you brought to us, he came in tzachik, to mock me or to play with me sexually. And then they give a long account, which I've excerpted here. I've not brought it here. The long account of all of Moses' arguments before God. Um, on behalf of the Israelites. Now remember, the rabbis have just told us they've done all three of the big sins, the worst possible things that you can do. <laughs> Bloodshed, immorality, and idolatry. Those are the three that get you kicked out of the land. Those are the, that's it. Those <laughs> um, so they, they've heaped upon the people the worst possible sin. Moses just makes argument after argument, but they're indefensible. They're indefensible. None of his arguments actually is able to, to win the day. But this is an illustration of clouds and wind without rain, the people were clouds and wind without rain, and yet Moses was successful in averting the punishment, a proof that with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue can break bones. He didn't convince him, he wore him down. He just wore him down. With patience, right? That, that, and you see in the arguments that he presents, you know, God said, yeah, sure. God has a refutation of every, every single one of the things that he brings. God is able to refute it. 
But in the end, God says, enough already. Just okay, never mind. I'm not going to kill them. It's okay. You know, love with patience. But it's, it's brilliant, right? Because they now, I can't read that verse in Proverbs now without summoning up this whole great dynamic between God and, and Moses, saving the Israelites, and so on. And at the same time, I've given myself now a way of really envisioning Moses in this whole scenario of just this counselor who's working with God and softening and softening and softening him until finally he relents and so on. Um, so this is the way intertextual reading works. But at the same time, they also use that verse from Psalm 106 to give us a very different kind of image of God. So that's going to happen um, in the next text. Here they're reading it in light of you know, Moses standing in the breach. Here they're commenting on the verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God. And again, it's Rabbi Tanchuma who opens and says, by first of all citing the Psalm 106. This is a verse he's going to use to read our story. He would have destroyed them had not Moses, his chosen one, confronted him in the breach to avert his destructive wrath. What is it to stand in the breach before him? What does that mean? Rabbi Chama Barchanina said, the good advocate knows how to set himself against the tribunal. Moses was one of two good advocates who arose to defend Israel and set themselves, as it were, against the Holy One, blessed be he. So a total face-off, right? It's a total standoff. And these were Moses and Daniel. These were the two men who set their faces against the attribute of strict justice in order to argue for mercy on Israel's behalf. So it's a more dramatic, more confrontational moment when you read it in the light of this verse. If you summon the Proverbs verse, then it's patience and it's an angry ruler and his wise counselor. But if you summon this verse, you get a different, it adds a different color and flavor to our story. So that's kind of how the rabbis work to begin with. And then after we get these two basic divergent portraits of Moses, Moses the diplomat, who is very persistent and patient in his speech, um, versus the military hero, who's really staving off an attack. Once I have those two basic portraits, each of them is sort of freely developed in interesting kinds of ways. So we'll, we'll take a look at some of those, um, and we'll see how they begin to play on some of the um, words in our story, especially this word, Vayichal. And I think I, oh my goodness, I misspelled it there. I'm sorry, it's Vayichal. I don't know how it became Vayichal. Um, so Moses implored Vayichal. The root of that is this Chala, Chal, Chol. Um, and that's a word, a root that has a range of different meanings. Sweet, which is why Chala, some people say that's why Chala bread is Chala bread, sweet. Um, it can mean um, profane, chol, kodesh, ben kodesh, the chol, right, between um, holy and, and profane or non-holy. Um, what's important about that word is um, that it can also be used to annul a vow. When you took a vow in antiquity, and of course even today in a court of law, you, people put their hand on the Bible, right? When you took a vow in antiquity, you uttered the holy name to show the seriousness of the vow. Because if you break the vow, that God will be angry at you for profaning his name, for showing that you didn't take his name seriously, and will punish you, right? So that's why people took oaths and swore in the name of a God. So to release yourself from a vow or to you know, not observe a vow is to profane. So the word ayachal um, <coughs> can be connected with profaning a thing or specifically to annul a vow. But it also can have a meaning of wearing a weapon or girding yourself for a battle. Modern Israel, um, you know, Yechayal, Yechayal is a soldier today in, in Israel. So it has all of these meanings, and they're going to play with these different meanings. So um, we're first going to look at some texts where Moses is seen as an intercessor, um, and God is giving a conditional hint to him. It's 646 already. 
Shoot. <laughs> you said I had till 7.05, is that right? I had, someone said 705. How much gap do you need between this and that? Yeah. Nothing. Okay, um, that's great. So uh, we started by, we started a few minutes late, so let's go until 705. Okay, and, and what time is this one? That's right seven. <laughs> it's seven. Okay. That's seven, but I, 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 we started a few minutes late, so let's okay. go a few minutes. So you know what, let's just do a couple of these and then get to the fun battle ones, because those are really fun. Um, so number four is really great, because this is picking up on the idea that this is a conditional statement by God and a bit of a hint. Now let me be. This is text number four. They're looking at God's words. Now let me be. And they ask, was Moses holding on to him? Right? <laughs> was Moses holding fast to God that he should say, now let me be? Of course not, right? So it's got to mean something else. To what can the thing be compared? To a king who was angry with his son and had him brought into a chamber and was about to beat him. But then the king cried from the chamber, let me be that I may beat him. Now, the instructor of the son was standing outside, and he thought to himself, wait, the king and the son are alone in the chamber. <laughs> so to whom is he saying, let me be? And I was like, I, I, look out, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get him. I'm, I'm going to get him. Um, so it must be that the king wants me to go in and entreat on his son's behalf. And for this reason, he says, let me be. He's hinting. Similarly, God said to Moses, now let me be. And Moses inferred, it's because God wants me to intercede on Israel's behalf. And therefore, he began to plead. Now, this is great. It's a, first of all, it's a, it adopts a psychological approach in its analysis of God and God's speech, right? Um, God drops hints. <laughs> um, and second of all, it sort of solves the problem. If you feel there's a problem with Moses sort of defying God, it, it turns Moses into someone who's simply being quite obedient and doing what God wants him to do. So it's a veiled call for action on God's part. And we see that a little more clearly in number five. God said to him, let not the two of us be angry. But when you see me pour hot water, you pour cold. And when you see me pour cold, you pour hot. And Moses asked, ruler of the universe, how shall this happen? And God said, pray for mercy on their behalf. So what did he do immediately? Moses implored the Lord. So they, this is their way of understanding. God sees Moses as, his, as the divine pacifier. Right? He's to cool God's temper when he threatens to lash out. But there are plenty of times when Moses says, I've had it with his people who appointed me to be their nursemaid, he says in Numbers. Right? And God says, calm down, it's okay. We'll work this out. So this is their relationship. It's, it's not too great a leap from the idea that God wants human prayer and entreaty to the idea that he needs it. Um, and some midrashim portray a God who's in some sense trapped by his own rules of sin and punishment. And we're going to look at one of those tonight, so maybe I'll leave that one. Yeah, maybe I'll leave number seven, because that's one of the ones we end with tonight. That's how the two talks come together. So I'll leave you to number seven, which is my very favorite one, of God being just completely trapped by his own rules of, of uh, punishment, and he really needs Moses to get him out of it. We'll end with that, but I'll give you a little one before that, which is number six. Um, Here's a case where God, you know, he's, he's got to punish. He has rules of sin and punishment, after all. And he did say that anybody who, who um, worships an idol um, should be killed. So he doesn't know quite what to do. Um, and so Moses um, is trying to calm him down. And God has, has just said, um, right before the passage you're about to read, God says to him, is, it's, is it possible not to execute strict justice on them? They've broken this commandment. This is a really big deal, Moses. I can't not punish them. And he's going to be forced to unless Moses can find some escape hatch. Um, and so this is the first escape, escape hatch. You'll have to wait till tonight for the second one. Number six, 
Moses pleaded, Lord of the universe, why are you angry with Israel? He replied, because they've broken the Decalogue. He said, well, they possess a source from which they can make repayment. They can repay the debt. He asked, what is that? Moses replied, remember that you tried Abraham with ten trials. So let those ten trials serve as compensation for these ten broken commandments. That's why he said, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So, and this is just one example. They comb through Moses' speech, right? And they find ways that in Moses' speech he's getting God out of the pickle that he's in. This is just one creative way and, and the best one we'll look at tonight. So we're going to skip number seven. And I promise we'll come back to number seven later. Do you um, think that um, he, uh, the Midrash develops both the adversary and the partner in order to say that to be a good partner you have to, to be, be a bit of an adversary. adversary. It's interesting you say that because in the Zohar, which is a much later text, they actually bring the two together quite perfectly. It's really interesting. Um, is there any point, so uh, any, anything that uh, Rabbi Tanhuma uh, is the one who brings both of them out? He argued... Uh, so sometimes it's too... Some, it could be. It could be. I'd have to go back and double-check it myself. But it's sometimes the case in Midrash that one rabbi will spin out two different, sometimes quite contradictory readings. Other times it'll be one will systematically pursue one, and another will systematically pursue another line. You get both phenomena. And I don't really remember what it is here, to tell you the truth. So, um, so those are ones where Moses can be described as God's partner in the project of sustaining the people of Israel, and he plays a vital role at the behest <coughs> of, of God to ensure that God doesn't um, destroy, uh, his, destroy the people. But in contrast, there are these more adversarial ones. So take a look at text number 8, which starts to um, give us a little bit more um, of a sense of how the urgency of the task is making Moses um, abandon his usual posture of, of um, you know, respect towards God. Um, and here they're playing on this vayachal in the sense of to treat as profane rather than to treat as holy. This is number eight. He, Moses, stood with, before God with scant respect in order to request, we might say, demand Israel's needs. Hence vayachal, meaning he, he treated God with very little respect. He treated him like a profane um, person. And on the simplest level, this adversarial relationship expresses itself in um, heated argument, and there are many texts that describe that. Um, prayer then becomes not so much a conversation and a way to persuade, but it becomes a weapon. And Moses is seen as girding himself with prayer, in other words, using prayer as a weapon. Um, so we see in number nine, um, where it says, and he would have destroyed them. Thereupon, Vayichal Moshe, with prayer, Moses girded himself with prayer. That's what it means when it says Vayichal, that he was going to use prayer as a weapon. And then they show us how he does that. On the theory that the best defense is a good offense, <laughs> Moses carries the battle into God's territory. He doesn't just stand in the breach to block God. He actually charges um, God, and he, he turns God's charge against Israel into an indictment of God himself. We see this in number 10. Ruler of the universe, it was the gold and silver that you lavished on Israel until they said enough that caused them to make the golden calf. A lion doesn't roar on account of a trough of straw, but on account of a trough of meat. Rabbi Oshaya said, it's like a man who had a cow that was skin and bones. He fed it vetch, and it kicked him. And he said to her, what caused you to kick me? Nothing but the very vetch with which I fed you. Similarly, in the next one, number 11. Lord of the universe, Moses said, consider the place from which you brought them out. Wasn't it Egypt where everyone worships lambs? Rav Huna said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, it can be compared to a wise man. 
who opened a perfumery shop for his son in a market frequented by prostitutes. <laughs> when the father came and caught him with a prostitute, he began to shout, I'll kill you. But his friend was there, and he said, You destroyed the boy, and yet you shouted him. This is what Moses said. Lord of the universe, you ignored the entire world. You caused your children to be enslaved. Dafka in Egypt, where everyone worships lambs, and from whom your children learned, bear in mind whence you brought them forth. This is why God, this is why he begins his prayer. Let not your anger, Lord, blaze forth against your people, whom you delivered from the land of Egypt, may I point out, God? <laughs> you know what they all do in Egypt. <laughs> They're picking up on his own language. Clues from his prayer are grist for the Midrashic mill. In Exodus Rabbah 43, 1, that's number 12, they find a different solution to the problem. He doesn't take action directly opposed to God, but works kind of indirectly to mitigate the divine decree. It's rather difficult to say that Moses confronted him in the breach. This author is a little bit uncomfortable with that, implying that he used force. So it can be compared to a king who was angry with his son and took his place on the tribunal and tried him, tried him and pronounced him guilty. And as he took up the pen to sign the verdict of the court, what did his associate do? He snatched the pen from his hand and broke it in order to appease his wrath. Similarly, when Israel committed that sin, God sat in judgment upon them to condemn them. So what did Moses do? He took the tablets from God's hand and he shattered them. Moses, moreover, said, it's better that they be judged as having done it unintentionally, right before they got the law. So it's not as if they knew the law and broke it intentionally. Then as if they had willfully committed the act. So quick, let's get rid of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> as if to say, if they had foreseen their punishment, then they wouldn't have sinned, right? But, you know... But in some, um, some midrashim really do extend the battle imagery <coughs> from the verbal arena right into the physical arena. Um, in the next one, Moses tells God that he'll muster 80 righteous men to stand in the breach against God. Um, he first gathers the 70 elders, um, and then he says, okay, now add to the 70 elders, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, Itamar, Pinchas, and Caleb, that makes 77. God said, but Moses, where are the three remaining righteous men? Because he said he was going to have 80. Moses couldn't find them. And then he said, Master of the universe, if these righteous men, though alive, cannot stand for them in the breach, then let the dead do so. Hence, remember Abraham. So those are the last three righteous men, all standing in the breach against him. There's another one that I, I didn't bring, but it's great because it psychologizes the, the anger so that the um, anger are these angry angels that are coming out to um, attack. And they're sort of separated from God, and God doesn't want them to. And there are five of these angry angels. And so Moses is staving off one, and God is staving off the other, and they need three more, and that's why he says, remember Abraham and Isaac. So God is wrestling with himself, if you will, to, to not destroy the people. But the following tradition, I think, is the one that's the most extreme in its portrayal of Moses bullying God into reversing his plan of destruction. Number 14. Were it not written in scripture, it would not be possible to say it. This, by the way, is a great line. It's used, I don't know, about 20 or 30 times in rabbinic literature, but it's always got some really theologically, wonderfully radical idea. So somebody's written an article on all the places that the rabbis say, were it not written, we wouldn't be able to say this. <laughs> Moses grabbed hold of God like a man grabs hold of his fellow by the collar, and he said, ruler of the universe, I won't let go until you are merciful and forgive him. He just backed him up against the wall. <laughs> and he's got him by the scruff of the neck. So we have these two striking readings of God's speech and Moses' activity 
um, following God's first speech and then the subsequent speech. And these different readings stem from, I think, a real pregnant ambiguity in the Exodus text itself, and they give rise to two lines of interpretation that are freely developed. Um, do we have time for me to read you one more that I didn't actually? Please do. We have three more. Anyway, yeah. uh, because, just because you asked about it, um, Cantor, I think it's worth mentioning that um, the, the uh, Kabbalists, right? The, the Zohar is a mystical work from the 13th century, the Jewish. Um, and I think the two interpretations really collapse into one in this text. The Kabbalists, um, if you know or recall, they believe that the world is sustained by a balance between um, two of God's ten attributes, right? So um, there's the attribute of justice, which is counterbalanced by the attribute of mercy. And if these two are ever out of balance, things go wrong in this world. Too much of the attribute of justice causes terrible things to happen in this world. Punishment starts to, you know, plagues and, and death and all sorts of terrible things happen. Too much mercy, though, and people get away with murder, right? So, so you have to have the right balance um, to sustain the world. And when the, the delicate balance is upset, the consequences are devastating. One of the tasks of the Kabbalist or the mystic is to help maintain the balance by bringing out God's attribute of mercy when that's necessary, um, and restraining God's attribute of justice in times of human sin. So the Zohar gives a mystical interpretation of our story. They actually talk about Exodus 32, and they describe Moses as being in the struggle against God's attribute of stern justice. And he had to be because the Shekhinah, who normally does that, Mother Shekhinah, according to the Kabbalah, normally um, does that, but the Shekhinah um, had disappeared, had been chased away by the creation of the, of the golden calf that had driven away the Shekhinah. And so the arm was raised with the lash, ready to strike. So even though he threatens and raises the lash, Mother Shekhinah usually comes and grabs hold of his right arm. So this is the image of God that the Kabbalists have. Is this. The lash is always raised, but Mother Shekhinah is always here. And his lash is suspended, and the sentence is not carried out because both of them share one design, he by threatening and she by holding back. However, when Israel sinned with the calf, they drove Mother Shekhinah away. Um, because of the sin, Mother, who always grasps the arm of the king and suspends the lash, was not there, and Moses had to take her place. As soon as the Blessed Holy One penetrated him, he saw clearly... Three times he penetrated him, O Moses, faithful shepherd. How mighty is your strength. How great is your power. Three times he penetrated you, as it is written. Now let me be, that is one. My anger will blaze against them and I'll consume them, that is two. And I will make you a great nation, that is three. The wisdom of Moses was in these three points. He grasped his right arm in response to leave me alone. He grasped his left arm in response to my anger will blaze against them and I'll consume them. He embraced the whole body of the king in response to, I'll make you into a great nation. Having embraced the body, both arms, on this side and that, he could not move to any side at all. This was the wisdom of Moses. He knew the various points of the king, where to be firm on each one, and he acted in wisdom. So <laughs> it's great because God penetrates him, right? You combine the images. God speaks in a way to penetrate him, to, to get him to act. I'm, my arm is raised. I have to strike them. Um, and um, Israel's sin causes the restraining influence of the Shekhinah to go into eclipse. The attribute of wrath and punishment is set free. Moses is the Kabbalist who has to work to correct the imbalance and avert destruction. And Moses is extolled as knowing exactly how to pinion God, how to maintain, how to firmly hold in the right place in response to God's hints as to what to do and to hold back the punishing wrath. Um, but it's a rich portrait of God. 
because it's a God who recognizes that his attribute of, of justice or strict judgment, his punishing wrath is spinning out of control. Um, he's unable to restrain himself, and so he appeals to Moses, who then rises courageously to oppose and restrain him. So it's a rich and conflicted portrait. God engages Moses to stop God from doing what he must but doesn't wish to do. And he's only too glad to be defeated by his creatures. So I hope you'll see how tonight this ties into the kind of God that we'll talk about as being created in rabbinic tradition in general. But um, <laughs>